people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. One thing I wanted to get into, I wanted to spend some time on this tonight, and that's entrepreneurship. And I read an editorial or a column in the Blade over the weekend by Keith Burris. He used to write a regular column. I forget what it was called. What was that called, Dan? Uh, oh, it was kind of a man-on-the-street kind of column, but he covered all kinds of subjects. And then he moved up to, like, head opinion writer or something. Uh, I, I for uh, Well, shoot, maybe it's right here in front of me. He's the editorial page editor, Keith C. Burris. And he wrote a, a column on entrepreneurs. And it was a good column, I got to tell you. I uh, disagreed with a couple of points, and that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. But overall, it was a very positive commentary on entrepreneurs and, more importantly, Northwest Ohio. So it translates to anywhere, but I've read this column several times. And you know, I, I couldn't let it go without some comment. So I, I hope Mr. Burris appreciates uh, me giving him attribution on this and, and uh, some of my remarks. But he talks about kind of a love-hate relationship that people seem to have with, with entrepreneurs. And in Toledo, uh, he points out the Andersons. And Andersons, to me, represent a terrific entrepreneurial attitude in this town. My dad, 100 years ago, knew the original Anderson, Harold Anderson. And, you know, obviously Mr. Burris did his history on the Andersons, but he spoke very positively uh, about what they do in the community and, and their company. And I agree with that. Now, he, he talks about what is an entrepreneur, and he, he says a risk taker. Okay, I agree with that. An independent cuss. Um, Okay, <laughs> I don't disagree with that. Uh, <coughs> a visionary and an eccentric, certainly. But most of all, he says, I think an entrepreneur is someone who makes something out of nothing. Now, th this is one of the points I want to uh, I want to talk about a little bit. Sometimes uh, an entrepreneur makes something out of nothing. the The best explanation that I heard, and I think it was. I don't know, Steve Jobs or somebody, but they create a product that people want before anybody knows they want it. So an iPhone was created, an iPod was created, and the, these 
items were were built and a lot of money put into them before anybody really knew that they wanted them. Now everybody's got one. Everybody has a cell phone and just about everybody has a smartphone and they're getting smarter. So one of the things I would add to the column is that entrepreneurs create things that the market wants before the market knows it wants them. So it creates a supply and the demand follows. And it sounds kind of contrarian, but that's the way the world works. There's a lot of entrepreneurs, and in fact, I would, I would say that every one of us is an entrepreneur. Certainly every one of us has the ability to be an entrepreneur. It's whether or not that switch gets turned on, whether we have the, the wherewithal, the, the chutzpah, if you will, to pull the trigger and go for it, um, whether we have the perseverance to continue after we fail, to learn from failing. Mr. Burris quotes a, a local entrepreneur, the Balance Pan-Asian Grills. I'm not familiar with those. But in talking to their founders, he said he emphasized three things, willingness to fail, a willingness to learn from failure, and an ability to empower employees. Well, I would agree with the ability to fail or the willingness to fail and the willingness to learn from that failure. Empowering employees is, is just good business strategy. You, you have talent and you let that talent grow. And I guess that could fall under entrepreneurship as well. But, you know, Toledo, Northwest Ohio, Akron, Southern Cleveland, even Cleveland, a uh, lot of entrepreneurs in the Midwest, a lot of entrepreneurs, and some more entrepreneur than others. Some of them are simply business owners. You can be a business owner and not an entrepreneur. You can have a job, be a, 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 an assembly line worker at Jeep and still be an entrepreneur. The key is finding, finding something in the market that people want before they know they want it. Coming up, Scott Sumner from the Mercatus Center is going to be joining me. And we're going to talk about his new book, The Midas Paradox, Financial Markets, Government Policy Shocks, and the Great Depression. Fascinating book. I did read it cover to cover. And it's a pretty serious book and pretty deep philosophy. But Scott Sumner coming up next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Scott Sumner. He's from the Mercatus Center. He's a Ralph G. Hawtrey. Chair of Monetary Policy at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he's a director of the Program on Monetary Policy. He's a professor of economics at Bentley University and research fellow at the Independent Institute. Author of the book, The Midas Paradox, Financial Markets, Government Policy Shocks, and the Great Depression. Author of the popular economics blog, 
the money illusion. Scott, welcome to An Economy of One. Thanks for inviting me, Gary. I appreciate it. Uh, Your publisher sent me a copy of your book, and I dove into that, and I was just fascinated by it. I know that that might sound kind of weird being it's a pretty serious tome about economics in in America, but I just really enjoyed it. And, And right at the beginning, right in the introduction, you say you approach monetary economics, not from the normal way people do of supply of money or interest rates, but from the disturbances in the world gold supply. Now, what led you in that direction? Why did you focus on the gold supply in looking at our economic history? Right. So the main reason is that it was a different kind of monetary system back then. So at the beginning of the Great Depression, the U.S. was still on the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And this really fixed all of the major developed countries together on one monetary system. And really, at its most basic level, gold was money in a sense. It was the most liquid asset of all. So like today, we normally think of if you get a check, you want to make get some real money for it, so you cash it in for some cash. Mm-hmm. But in those days, the real money was gold. So if people had paper money and they were doubtful about it, they'd take it to the treasury and get gold for it uh, at a fixed price. And gold, therefore, really underlay the entire uh, global monetary system at that time. Now, you know, in speaking about gold, and you talk about that throughout the the entire book, but, you know, one of the things I, I took from it was you talk about private gold hoarding and how that factored into your research and ultimately how it factored into the Depression in the 30s and maybe even contributed to the crash of 29. How did gold hoarding factor into the problems we had? Okay, so I took it sort of one step at a time. We had this big deflation in the early 1930s, and and prices fell sharply during the Great Depression. Now, when you have deflation, the flip side of that is money gains purchasing power, Uh, not just money, but also gold. Mm -hmm. So gold was actually getting more valuable as everything else was going down. Gold's purchasing power went up. I figured, well, there must be something going on in the gold market to make gold more valuable. And it turns out that it was mainly an increase in demand for gold from two places. One was the major central banks like the Fed and the Bank of France especially, which were accumulating gold. And that demand for gold drove up its value. And the second factor is once we got into the Depression a little ways, people started to worry about devaluation of currency. Uh, and that happened eventually. Mm-hmm. And as they started to worry about devaluation, they started hoarding gold because they were worried that paper money was going to be devalued. But this attempt of everyone to get gold at the same time was kind of counterproductive. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the, the metaphor of the Midas uh, paradox. Remember the, the court story of King Midas is he tries to uh, everything he touches turns to gold. It turns out to be a curse. And what happened here was as everyone tried to accumulate more gold, it just drove the global economy deeper into depression. But it actually started with central banks like the Fed and the Bank of France mm-hmm. uh, hoarding gold. Now, if hoarding gold, both from a central bank standpoint and from an individual standpoint, drove up the price of gold, how was that counted in the economy given uh, the fact that gold was fixed at $20 an ounce? Yeah, good question. So. Um, what happened is that the, the so-called nominal price, that is the official price, didn't really change in the early 30s, uh, at least for a few years. But what happened is, if you kind of think of it this way, 
the dollar bill today is the only asset the price can't change, right? A dollar bill is always a dollar. Right. So the only way the value of money itself changes is through either inflation or deflation. So mm-hmm. most of your listeners have lived long enough to experience a lot of inflation, and they see the dollar lose value, lose purchasing power compared to a few decades ago. Right. It's hard to wrap your mind around the reverse. In the early 30s, we were having a lot of deflation, so both dollar bills and gold were gaining purchasing power. You're right. The price of them is fixed in nominal terms. Like a, In those days, it was about $20 an ounce for gold in the early 30s. And that price stayed the same, but the purchasing power of gold kept going up as you had deflation. And in fact, the only way under a gold standard that gold can be more valuable is if you have deflation. That's the mechanism by which gold gets more valuable. Okay, now one of the things that the kind of caused me pause in uh, reading your book was you also talk about, and you just mentioned it a minute ago, currency hoarding. And mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I'd never really thought about that before. And I've, I've read a lot. I, I try to read everything I can all the time. And I never really thought about currency hoarding. Explain that to me. And, and how, how did that go into the equation? So um, people were hoarding a lot of currency for two reasons. Um, one is uh, the interest rates are low, so they weren't able to earn much in the banks anyway. Mm-hmm. But also they were afraid of bank failures. A lot of banks failed in the early 1930s. So people would pull money out of banks and put it under their mattress as currency. And so what happened is the attempt to hoard currency under the gold standard creates a problem because all that currency has to be backed by gold at a certain ratio. So that sort of forces the central banks then to try to accumulate more gold to back up this currency that people are trying to hold. Okay. So that's just another of the factors that was sort of driving up the demand for gold. And it, it all comes down to gold being the ultimate source of liquidity. But then currency, you could say, would be maybe the second most liquid asset out there. And then everything else is even... Uh, less liquid than that. So during this crisis period, people really want liquidity. They want a safe asset. And first they hoard currency, and then ultimately they're hoarding gold or the central banks are hoarding gold. Now, you know, they, when, when I, I read about hoarding currency and some of the effects that you researched, the thought that came to my mind, and, and shortly thereafter it came into my mind, I read it in the book, was talking about the velocity of money. Mm-hmm. Now, does hoarding currency... Does that screw up the velocity of money, and how important is that in economic health? Exactly. So it's, 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 it's almost exactly the flip side of velocity. When people hoard more money or accumulate it, they're, they're not spending it as rapidly. So velocity tends to go down. Velocity, uh, for your listeners, is the speed at which money is spent through the economy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of economists, especially monetarists, kind of look at things this way. There's the quantity of money, and then the speed at which it's spent. And those two variables greatly influence the business cycle. When you have more money or if it's spent faster, you tend to get a boom. Maybe too much of that, you get inflation. Now, we had the opposite in the Great Depression. We had velocity falling as people were holding on to or hoarding both money and gold. And and so that was depressing spending in the economy in the early 30s. I also read about the what we call the NRA, which is not the National mm-hmm. Rifle Association, it's National Recovery Administration, raised wages significantly in 1933, which 
you know, caused a, a, apparently some real problems in the recovery and deepening the, the depression and stuff. Tell me a little bit about that. And is the conversation about doubling the minimum wage today relevant in relation to what happened then? Yeah, it is, it is relevant. And I think one of the things I found in the book is a lot of economists had missed the story in 33 because actually two things happened right after uh, FDR took office in early 33. The first thing FDR did was to devalue the dollar against gold, mm-hmm. and that, that provided a spur to the economy. It got prices rising. And for about four months, you had very rapid uh, boom in uh, output. Output grew 57% in four months, uh, industrial output. But then what FDR did is he decided he had to reward uh, sort of the workers who weren't, you know, maybe getting benefits directly from these higher prices. So he artificially forced wages about 20% higher in just two months through executive actions uh, under the NRR. NRA program. Now, what this did is it essentially temporarily killed the recovery for about two years. So industrial production leveled off for about two years. It, then it was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in mid-35, and, industri- and industrial production started recovering pretty briskly again. And then later we had several other FDR programs of um, unionization, minimum wage, minimum wage increase. And I found each time he forced wages higher artificially through government regulation, it dramatically slowed the recovery. So we didn't really recover until about the time of Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941. And I think, you know, the devaluation of the dollar helped the recovery, and, and certainly things were a little bit better uh, initially under Roosevelt and under Hoover, but we could have had a much faster recovery if he hadn't pushed wages artificially higher. And that's exactly what worries me about the proposals for a $15 minimum wage. I, mm-hmm. I see the same potential mistake being made uh, if we have that dramatic an increase. We're speaking with Scott Sumner, author of the book, The Midas Paradox, Financial Markets, Government Policy Shocks, and the Great Depression. Scott, i got a few more questions, but i got to take a break. Can you hang on for a couple minutes? Yes, I can. I appreciate it. I'm Gary Rathbun. This is an economy of one. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're speaking with Scott Sumner from the Mercatus Center. He's author of the book, The Midas Paradox, Financial Markets, Government Policy Shocks, and the Great Depression. He's also author of the popular economics blog, The Money Illusion. Uh, Scott, one thing I, I had to read several times just to try to get my arms around, but you talk throughout the entire book about gold reserve ratios the dollar price of gold. Can you can you explain gold reserve ratios? Because you you reference that in in connection with countries like France and mm-hmm. increasing their ratios. What do you mean by gold reserve ratios? And are we seeing that in China right now with them buying a bunch of gold? Um, not exactly the same in China now, but the the basic idea is that the paper money had to be backed up with gold, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a hundred percent backed. So. There are typically rules of about 40% backing. In other words, for every dollar in 
circulation, you had to have at least 40 cents worth of gold in the vaults backing it up okay. in case people brought it in to be cashed in. So the gold reserve ratio is that ratio of gold held by the government to the money in circulation. But what, what I use it for is to measure a hoarding of money by central banks. So if that ratio was stable, you had a pretty stable monetary policy. But when that ratio increased, it meant that central banks were hoarding gold. That is, they were backing the money with more and more gold or accumulating more and more gold for each dollar in circulation. And that then became sort of the statistical way I measured whether they were moving towards easier money or tighter money. And under the gold standard, you can't really use things like interest rates as a very meaningful way of looking at easy and tight money. You really have to look at what they're doing to the gold market. Now, today, we do use interest rates as far as tight money or, or loosening money. Is gold factoring into the equation today, or being no, off the gold would, standard, we're out of that? I think we're out of that because gold, now that the price of gold just fluctuates with all of the prices, it no longer really determines the rate of inflation the way it used to. Okay. But what we do have that might be a little bit of an analogy, maybe there's two analogies to the gold standard. One would be uh, the euro system, because under the gold standard, individual countries didn't have much ability to change their monetary policy because they're all that, you know, roped together under this one system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, in some ways, the problem in the eurozone uh, is, is sort of like the problem that occurred under the gold standard in the Great Depression. The other analogy I could give you is that the dollar is more and more becoming sort of an international money so you mentioned you know, China. China uh, actually holds a lot of dollar reserves, right. uh, often in the form of treasury bonds. And other countries also use a lot of dollars. So what, what happens, uh, one of my colleagues at Mercatus, uh, David Beckworth, calls the Fed a monetary superpower. In other words, because the dollar is so widely used internationally, when the Fed policy changes, you often see stock markets all over the world kind of you know, reacting strongly. And, and that's because monetary conditions all over the world are heavily influenced by Federal Reserve policy. And I think it is because the dollar is the closest thing we have today to the role that gold was back then. Now, given all of your research, you know, I got to ask you a couple of questions. What caused the stock market crash of 29? What really caused it from your research? And do you have any insights as to where our market is today and how fragile it is, and and could that happen again? Uh, Yeah, it could happen, although I would say the closest analogy in recent history would be maybe late 2008, which was a little bit like 1929, uh, not as bad, but, um, you know, we had a stock crash along with the the banking crisis. Now, if you go back to late 29, so I looked at the market then, and um, I, I, I personally don't, Uh, try to forecast where the stock market is going. I try to explain what economic factors seem to be causing the changes. And my hunch is that a big part of the crash in late 29 was that traders saw we were probably going into a depression of some sort. Now, let me be clear. I don't think they anticipated a Great Depression in 29, or it would have even crashed further. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though the crash was pretty large, it was a lot like 1987. If any of your listeners are old enough to remember 87, mm-hmm. in that year we had a huge stock price run-up, and then prices kind of crashed back to where they were at the beginning of the year. 
And I think that's kind of what happened in, in late 29. We had this enormous boom in 28, 29, and then stocks crashed, but only back to, say, the level of 1928. So stocks were not still that low. But I think the crash was the market anticipating things were going awry in terms of monetary policy and some other things, mm-hmm. maybe the Smoot-Hawley tariff. Mm-hmm. That's a little more debatable. But there were a number of policy issues that really worried the markets as they saw the economy tipping into a depression. They crashed. Now, later in 30, 31, 32, when the depression got much, much worse, stocks crashed even further. So it wasn't just the 1929 crash. That only brought us back to, say, a year or two earlier, like 1987. But what happened and what was different from 1987 is the economy kept going downhill so the market can continually or almost continually crash further and further all the way up to 33. The difference is in 1987, I think the policymakers reacted more sensibly, and we didn't have a depression after that crash. And so there was no further damage to the stock market mm. after that big drop. I got one more question for you. I wish I had you for a lot more time. I got pages of questions here because I I read through the book, so I'm going to have to have you back. But you you talk uh, a little bit about how financial markets respond very quickly to new Mm -hmm. information. And given the speed of information today, that makes sense. But the speed of information back in the 20s and the 30s, I mean, you – you connect a lot of things to headlines in the New York Times because uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty much the, the paper of record. But international communication, so that took a long time back then. What well, is not it? As, not oh. as long as you'd think. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. that The big change in speed of communication was um, the telegraph. Okay. So as soon as the telegraph line was laid between New York and London, let's say, New York started to get European news within, like, minutes of it happening in London. And even though the telegraph is kind of crude compared to the Internet, it was still fast. Right. You know? right. And so once telegraphs linked the major financial markets around the world, news started to travel pretty fast. And one of the things about that makes financial markets, quote, efficient is that they process news really fast because the people that are first – can make a big profit, you know, if right, they, right. and before that, you know, like in the Civil War, they used to, you know, like send horses racing <laughs> from the battle to the, the market in New York with the news of whether the North or South had won so that, right. the, you know, the bonds of the government would go up or down. But right. with a telegraph, it, it did happen pretty quickly. I didn't think about that, really, but you're absolutely right. It, it's it's interesting. Well, Scott, I really appreciate all your time. It's a terrific book. We're going to put it on our website and, and uh, Facebook. And if you don't mind, i got to have you back. i got so many questions, and it was just so fascinating, your take on, on all this. Terrific research. Uh, great book, and I hope we can uh, talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. I'd be glad to come back and i should warn your readers it's it's not real light reading as you <laughs> could tell them but i hope they enjoy it no it's very readable though i mean it is deep but it's very readable so uh great research great work and look forward to talking to you again real soon an economy of one with gary rathbun Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. 
You know, I'm sure every radio person, every newspaper person, every politician has been out there saying stuff about Orlando and using it to try and further their own cause. I can't imagine family members and what they, you know, went through. I saw several things on the Internet that the families were waiting, waiting to hear about their family. Now, that can't be good. That tells you there there was some real brutality in there. But I, I told my wife when I first heard that, I said, uh, you know, the the issue is going to be drowned out by the shouts of gun control, and it's the gun that did it. Well, I was partially right. The You remember it just, and I don't want to make light of this in any way, shape, or form, but you remember the old Dirty Harry movies? Every Dirty Harry movie had a phrase. And Magnum Force was a man's got to know his limitations. One of the other ones was just simply swell. He said swell through the whole movie. What was um, the original Dirty Harry? Shoot, I'll think of it. But anyway, every instance, every movie had its own phrase. And, and I look at this scenario in... Uh, Orlando, and there's two phrases that keep coming up from everybody. One is homegrown terrorism or self-radicalization. Self-radicalization. Check it out. Everything you see, self-radicalization. They're trying to distance it from the broader issues around radical Islamic terrorism. The other phrase that keeps coming up is AR-15, and uh, it wasn't an AR-15. And even President Obama said he had a Glock which had a lot of clips in it. Well, I don't know who's writing his speeches for him, but one, a Glock does not have a lot of clips. In fact, it doesn't have any clips. It has a magazine, and it can only have one. Now, he may have had pockets full of magazines for the Glock, but everything's an AR-15 and a Glock handgun. Well, it wasn't an AR-15. It was a Sig Sauer rifle that uh, is what they call a, I think they call it a multi-caliber. They can change the barrels on it and have different calibers tied to it. But that being aside, it illustrates my point that this happened because of guns. He got the gun legally. When he, he passed the background check. Okay, well, that means he wasn't a criminal at the time he bought the gun, which means that as an American-born citizen, he's innocent until proven guilty. So he's obviously a terrible, evil person. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to apologize for the guy in any way, shape, or form. None. It's terrible. Evil, demented, nutcase. I don't know how else I can put it and get past FCC standards. But the point is, if they want to pass laws to stop someone like him from doing something like what he did, one, there's no law in the universe that would have stopped this. And two, it's going to take away yours and my liberty and our constitutional rights. I'm not just talking about the Second Amendment. I'm talking about our basic right of innocent until proven guilty. 
Nobody has a criminal record until they commit a crime. Now, let me rephrase that. Nobody has a criminal record until they've been convicted of committing a crime. This guy was never convicted of a crime. Was he under suspicion? Yeah. Is this the FBI's fault? No. No more so than it's the gunmaker's fault. It's not Sig Sauer's fault. It's not the gun shop's fault that sold him the gun. They did everything legal. Did the background check. Should they press charges against his wife, ex-wife, friends, or whatever that said he wanted to do this? I don't know, man. I, I think that's a slippery slope. Guy's dead. The only thing that disappoints me in his death is that he's dead. I'd like him to be alive and suffer a little more. I don't think he suffered very much. But I'm tired of our politicians not representing us using events like this to their own agenda and enhancement. And it illustrates to me, now you know me, I'm not a Donald Trump supporter or a Hillary Clinton supporter, not an Obama supporter either. But Trump comes out and says what's on a lot of people's minds. He's not blaming the gun. He's blaming the nutcase, as he should. And until you can tell the nutcase from the non-nutcases, until you can get people to not entice people to do this kind of stuff. I mean, this was a gay establishment. I got nothing against that. I don't care. But you have a religion that all over the world persecutes gays, kills them, tortures them, imprisons them simply for being gay. And we don't know 90% of the facts about this yet. It's going to take weeks, I think, before all the facts come out. A lot of people speculating that it was more than one guy, that he had an accomplice. even saw a headline today that an accomplice will be uh, arrested within a week. Well, I haven't seen anything that definitely says there was an accomplice, anything like that. But you can bet that Democrats in Congress... Hillary Clinton and President Obama are going to do everything they can to limit your ability to purchase a gun and protect yourself. You remember last week we talked about, I think it was the Ninth, Ninth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in California said that the desire to provide self-defense was not valid reason for getting a gun. That was not covered under the Second Amendment. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but bear with me. So self-defense was not a reason for wanting a concealed carry permit. Well, I'm not going to be the first to ask this question. I have purposely not listened to anybody uh, about this. But I don't know how many people were in that club. Uh, apparently 49 now were killed, 53 injured, and one nutcase dead. Okay. what? So uh, there, there's 100 dead and wounded. So there had to be more than 100 people in there. Okay. So let's conservatively say there was 200 people in there. What if one of them, one of them 
had a gun? What if 50 of them had a gun? If we want to play what ifs, if we want to say, well, the background check should have caught it, what if the FBI would have done something? The guy committed no crimes yet. People can go around and say they want to do stuff, and that's not a crime. I think it's a crime if you say you want to hurt a politician or assault the president or something. Can't do that. But to sit around a water cooler and say, I'm not happy with gay people. I think they all should be killed. Uh, That's wrong. Stupid. It's demented. It's evil. It's not a crime. Now, I think the, the uh, what do you call them, imam or imam or whatever it is, the head of the mosque, saying you should go out and kill gays because it's a compassionate thing to do. You know what? I disagree with every every word in that sentence. But I don't think the FBI or anybody else can act on that sentence. I think it adds to the equation I think it goes into, if they were to look into this guy three, four times, I think they got to look into that. And, uh, but he hasn't committed any crimes until this that we know of. Hasn't been convicted of any crimes. And I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that he had constitutional rights uh, right up to the point where he pulled that trigger. And then his constitutional rights were gone and he should have been stopped or killed immediately but the bar was a gun-free zone which means it was a a victim um uh what 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 levine call levine call it a, a, a disarmed victim zone and we can play what-if games all day long and i can say well what if somebody had a gun there that wouldn't have happened well i don't know that But from my own personal experience, I don't know what I would do in that situation, but I'd like to believe that I wouldn't go down or wouldn't let my wife go down without trying to take him down. One of my tenants in life, and I have many that I live by, One of my tenets in life is the rules of engagement are established by the enemy. And you're not going to love these people into not doing this kind of stuff. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 